see if we can get going here. Good morning. Um, go ahead and take your Bible, if you would, and go to Psalm 16. Psalm 16. <clears throat> Psalm 16. This may be our last... <clears throat> psalm to study for a while as probably likely we're going to be starting a study of a New Testament epistle next week, next Lord's Day. Um, quite possibly the book of Hebrews. So um, anyway, in that context, in thinking about that, um, I was... Uh, unsure whether I was going to start that this week or not anyway, and so then due to circumstantial things, uh, anyway, uh, fell back to a psalm anyway, but it's interesting because yesterday morning, all right, in my, my tip, my normal reading of a psalm, this is a psalm, it's the only psalm I read yesterday morning because after I read it, I just kind of stayed on it, and um, it just kind of Click that, hey, this is what we want to look at today. So anyway, um, Psalm 16, it's one of those, it's, it's really uh, an important psalm. Um, I was going to do some other background things beforehand and again in, in my initial thinking of this, but I didn't really have time to collect the various scriptures that I wanted to for that. But uh, I'll, just, I'll just put this out here to start with, and then we'll, we'll move on from this. But the resurrection, all right, um, the resurrection of Christ particular, but just general, the resurrection, all right, uh, is a theme that oftentimes is, is considered to be only a New Testament doctrine. However, obviously it was introduced in the Old Testament in a number of ways. In fact, even in Job, Job, the book of Job, Job mentions about, uh, I believe in chapter 19, about he will see his Redeemer and he'll stand, and even mentions, this may not be an exact quote, but to the effect of, I will stand in my body before him. So, obviously, he's talking of resurrection, because Resurrection is not just a spiritual thing, it's a physical thing as well, all right, what the Bible aspect of resurrection. And it's not just resuscitation physically, it's a change that takes place. I mean, they're, they're, it's an involved thing, but, but anyway, uh, it obviously is something that's introduced in the Old Testament, but greatly expanded upon in the New Testament. Now, that's, that's common with a lot of doctrines, all right? Uh, in fact, I was thinking about it this way. In many ways, the Old Testament is, is kind of generic, all right, in, in, in a number of ways. Um, and, and in, like, particular doctrines, we're introduced to the ideas in the Old Testament, but then the New Testament, you know, hones in on it and gives us a lot more details of it. Um, and so... That said, all right, this psalm, let's, let's go ahead, we'll read the psalm first and have a word of prayer here, but, but this psalm, I'm sure, uh, okay, that this psalm was part of 
the exposition that the Lord Jesus gave to his disciples uh, on you know, the day of his resurrection and then following that in the days that he was assembling with them here on the earth before he uh, ascended his, his final time, if you want to say. I think that he probably resurrected or ascended a number of times, but, um, but when he finally went and ascended back to heaven to stay where he is now, but I think this is probably part of the exposition he gave. Remember when he, it says that he, he went back to the law, to the prophets, to the Psalms, and taught them all things concerning himself? I'm, I'm certain this is one of the passages that he, he dealt with, and, and I, I believe for a couple of reasons, because of, it obviously pertains to that, but also because of a New Testament reference to it I think that's part of the explanation as to why that man referred to it. But anyway, we'll get to that in just a bit. But uh, uh, again, I think this is probably part of that because it's obviously a very integral part of the, the trail of Christ throughout the Old Testament. And uh, this psalm is a psalm of David by the heading. Um, and, and so obviously that, it, you know, that pertains to the understanding of it as well. Um, but it's a psalm of David. It's uh, in the first book, the five books of Psalms. This is in that first book of Psalms, of course. Um, and it is, uh, again, a psalm that is messianic. It pertains to Christ. It's quoted that way in the New Testament. And uh, again, this is one of the, those Old Testament portions that without the New Testament, all right, it might not be as clearly understood okay, as, as the, what it teaches about Christ. And so, uh, all that said, let's read it, have a word of prayer, and then we'll, we'll jump into looking at, at this psalm. So, I'll ask Pastor Brinker to start. Preserve me, O God, for in thee do I put my trust. O my soul, thou hast said unto the Lord, thou art my Lord, excuse me, yeah, thou art my Lord, my goodness extendeth not to thee. But the saints that are in the earth and the excellent whom is all my delight. Their sorrows shall be multiplied, that hasten after another God. Their drink offerings of blood will I not offer, nor take up their names into my lips. The Lord is the portion of my inheritance, and of my cup thou maintainest my lot. The lines are fallen unto me in pleasant places, yea, I have a goodly heritage. I will bless the Lord. Who hath given me counsel? My reins also instruct me in the night seasons. I have set the Lord always before me, because he is at my right hand, I shall not be moved. Therefore my heart is glad and my glory rejoiceth. My flesh also shall rest in hope. For thou wilt not my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thy holy one to see corruption. Thou wilt show me the path of life, in thy presence is fullness of joy. At thy right hand there are pleasures forevermore. All right, let's go ahead and pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word and uh, obviously for what it teaches us about the Lord Jesus Christ, but uh, also in the, in the, in the scope of our, our Sunday school time this morning, also the personal lessons that we can uh, glean from this psalm as well. So we just pray that you'd help us. And help us to be closer to you, more devoted to you, as having, uh, as a result of having looked at this psalm this morning. We ask these things in Jesus' name, and for His sake, we pray. Amen. 
All right. Um, obviously, there's probably a few statements, at least, maybe verses in this psalm that kind of ring a bell uh, with you after, after we've read it, all right? And uh, particularly verses 8 through 11, uh, because those are the verses that are actually referred to in, in the New Testament. But uh, you can see that this is an Old Testament reference. I'll just throw this out here now. This is an Old Testament reference to the resurrection and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus in particular, but in a way also in the generic principle of resurrection. Now, um, of psalms, all right, we've, we've talked about this a couple times as we looked at some of the psalms. There's different groupings, classifications of psalms. This psalm is obviously a messianic psalm, and as a messianic psalm, it obviously is prophetic, okay, because obviously... Psalms were written before Christ was here on the earth, uh, and, and so it's obviously prophetic, all right? But consider this, just there's, there's three main truths, I guess you could say, about Messiah that this psalm communicates. Now, these are broad, uh, but uh, number one, Messiah would enjoy a unique relationship with God the Father. Now, that's kind of a a broad statement, but in other words, Messiah would have a particularly close relationship with God the Father. He had a, and, and unique in the sense that uh, although it's something that all of us are to try to uh, follow, I don't believe any of us can achieve it like he did, uh, of course. He had perfect fellowship with the Father. Um, our fellowship comes and goes and wanes and, and strengthens and so on. Um, his is, uh, was constant and perfect. Now, um, that aspect of Messiah's life as a man, now that's, that's the key, okay? And that's one of the things, and when we get into the book of Hebrews, this is something that Hebrews deals with, but, uh, you know, something that is difficult for us to probably understand fully for sure, but even sometimes just, just even little bits. But, uh, I mean, the concept that Christ, that the Lord Jesus Christ, are, He is God, but yet He also became man. And as a man, I mean, a lot of people think of that, okay, He's God, He just, he just kind of like put on a human body and came down here. No, it's more than a physical aspect of, of humanity. He became a man. He put on humanity, every aspect of humanity he had. Now, he was perfect as a man, okay? He was sinless, uh, but, but he put on manhood. He, he became a man. And, and that's, that's difficult to, to ration out because, and that's where a lot of people get confused in some of the statements that the Bible makes about Christ because some of the things about Christ are specifically only talked about in his humanity. Like in the book of Hebrews where it talks about he learned obedience. Obviously as God, he didn't learn anything, but, but he learned obedience, all right? In other words, the idea is he, in a practical way in life, he, were, you know, he was obedient. He, he, wore, he lived it out, all right? And, uh, but at the same time, think of this, Luke chapter 2 says that Christ as a... Boy, he grew, 
He grew in wisdom. <laughs> I mean, you know, anyway, there's a lot of, lot of deep waters in all of that, for real. But what I'm getting at is a lot of people get confused because they, they fail to keep in mind, okay, he not only is God, but he is a man. And, and that affects a lot of things that you, or that pertains to a lot of things that you see in Scripture. And as a man, though, Christ had a, a obviously perfect walk with God, but he had a, a dependency on God the Father and God the Holy Spirit like we should have, all right? And that's, that's part of the point of him becoming a man. He was the perfect example to us in everything. All right, but uh, and I'm I'm getting a little more bogged down here than I wanted to in laying these out. But three three principles or truths about Messiah that this psalm communicates. That's the first one. Messiah would enjoy a unique relationship with God the Father. Now that aspect again is is really brought out in when you look at the Gospels. It's really emphasized in John's Gospel. Over and over again, we have statements. You know where where. Uh, Jesus says that he came to do the Father's will. Uh, you know, it, it, and, and I listed some verses, but it's not obviously exhaustive. But uh, sometimes it's a statement, you know, his will, not mine, and, and various things. Even in the Garden of Gethsemane, right? This is what I would, you know, ob obviously there were things that he dreaded. I mean, and again, I don't know that we can fully appreciate all that, but there were things he dreaded as to what he was facing. And, and, but at the same time, he was completely submitted to do what the Father wanted done and what would please the Father. And, and by the way, I think his dread, if you want to say, was more along the lines of the sin that he would take on, not so much the physical suffering that he would endure. I mean... As th those are deep waters right there, okay? But, but anyway, he would enjoy that unique relationship with God the Father. Again, that's, that's particularly brought out in John's gospel more so than the others, but uh, it's New Testament-wide, but particularly in John's gospel. All right, then secondly, a second great truth about Messiah that would be difficult for the Jews, you know, for God's people to grasp is that he would die. You don't see that word here in this psalm, but the, the, the aspect of that is clearly seen, all right? Messiah would, in fact, he must die. It's interesting that when Jesus communicated that to, you know, the apostles, all right? Uh, I think of Matthew chapter 16, and in, in, now, of course, Matthew's not laying everything out chronologically, but, but in Matthew 16, you know, you have the context, Jesus uh, they're in Caesarea Philippi, and he says, who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they give him all these various answers, you know, Jeremiah, Isaiah, whatever, one of the prophets, so on. He says, but who do you say that I am? And that's when Peter says, you know, thou art the Christ, the Son of God, Son of the living God. And Jesus commends him for that, you know, the Father's revealed that to you. That's the only way that you've understood that, right? But then, you know, the next verses... Uh, he makes a few statements there about the, the church and so on. But then in the, you know, just several verses down, verse 21, <clears throat> I'm having some allergy problems or something this morning, sorry. But in verse 21, that's where Jesus, it says that from that time forward, Jesus began to teach his disciples 
that, and it says that he must go to Jerusalem. He, and, and I'm adding the must each time here for emphasis, but because it, it, that's the context, or that's the, the application of, but he must suffer many things of the chief priests, the elders, and the scribes. He must be killed, it says, and he must be raised again the third day. Now, they didn't grasp all that. Even when he plainly told them, he didn't get it, or they didn't get it. I mean, uh, and he's, he's telling them. And, and the idea of that where it says he began, it wasn't the, he didn't tell them just one time. He told them multiple times, but they just didn't get it. And then Peter's response in that immediate context is what? Oh, wait, that's not going to happen to you. And I think part of his emphasis, we're not going to let that happen to you. Now, you know, I mean, then, then Jesus says, get thee behind me, Satan, for thou art an offense to me. He's speaking to Peter when he says that. But I mean, but the point is, okay, they just didn't get it. And, you know, it, it took the events to happen and then Jesus to miraculously resurrect and then take them back to the scriptures and show them. And then the Bible says in Luke 24, then opened he their understanding. I mean, so it took all of that for them to get it, you know, because, because their mindset was just fixed on something else by the bias, if you want to say, that they had uh, by Jewish tradition at that time, by that time. Uh, and, and that's no different than m- most people. You know, we all have some kind of fixed mindset biases that, has to, that God's truth has to, you know, break and work through, all right? But second, all right, Messiah would die. But third, Messiah would be resurrected. He wasn't just going to die and that was it. He would be resurrected, all right? And this is one of the Psalms, Psalm 22 also really makes it clear as well. But this is one of the Psalms that brings that out here, right? Particularly again in verses 8 through 11 is where you really see that coming about. So think about an overview of the Psalm, and I want to try to hurry because there's a part I really want to get to at the end of this, right? So uh, an overview of the Psalm, right? Verse verse 1 sets the tone of the entire Psalm, keeping one's focus and dependence and trust upon the Lord God. That, I believe, is the overarching uh, um, thought of this psalm. It's not just the resurrection. That's, that falls into the scheme of this, but it's really just a statement that if you look at verse um, 10, where it says, Thou, shalt, thou will not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. All right, the first word is what? For, which is giving an explanation of something or a reason for something that went before, which is, my heart is glad, my glory rejoiceth, and my flesh shall rest in hope. In other words, it's, it's a for statement, if you want to say, of Christ's attitude before his sufferings took place that he knew what was coming, right? He had hope. He wasn't just going to die he was going to be resurrected. God was not going to leave him in that state, all right? He would be resurrected. That's, that's the gist of that statement. But it falls into the bigger picture, if you want to say, if I can say it that way, of what this psalm is talking about is trusting God, keeping our eyes on the Lord. Brother Hammett, when he writes, you know, he often, that's usually the phrase he signs right before his name, you know, keep your eyes on the Lord, 
And, you know, everybody's heard that or some version of that, you know, keep looking at the Lord, uh, things of that sort. But what does that mean? And that's really what this psalm is about, I believe, right? It says, um, let, me, let me get back here and then I'll, I'll, we'll look at some things here. But there's a book that I, I enjoy, okay? I think it's been a, it's been a help to me over the years. Um, I'm not big on commentaries as such, and no commentary, good or bad, is infallible, all right? But I would recommend this book, all right? Uh, uh, again, there's only one book that you can recommend 100%, and that's the Bible, all right? But uh, maybe you've heard of it, but it's called The Believer's Bible Commentary, uh, written by William MacDonald. It's just a, a one-volume commentary. It's about that thick, the copy I have, but it's, it's just one volume on the entire Bible, um, but I, I appreciate his approach to it, all right? Uh, it's titled Believer's Bible Commentary, and his approach is, even if there's difficulties, trust God. That's, I mean, he doesn't, you know, criticize and, and so on. That's his approach, and I appreciate that. But anyway, he has some, he has some insightful help in, in a number of places. So I'm going to read this statement that he makes, all right, in his treatment of Psalm 16. He says, the key to understanding Psalm 16 is found in Acts chapter 2, verses 25 through 28, where Peter quotes verses 8 through 11 as referring to the resurrection of Christ. So let us put the key in the door then and listen as our wonderful Savior prays to his Father immediately prior to his death. So his, his view, his approach to this psalm is David is actually prophesying what Christ is praying to the Father before he faces his death, which is an, I, I, you know, it's an interesting view if you think about it that way, all right? Um, now, I believe, okay, that this is an interesting approach to the psalm, but I think that you also uh, have to add, like most if not all other messianic psalms, is that this psalm does have an immediate context as well, and the human writer David obviously can relate. He, he doesn't relate to Christ's death in the same way. Obviously, you know, he didn't, he didn't die uh, for others and, and, and so on. But what I'm getting at is David faced a lot of difficulties in his life. He faced a lot of circumstances where he had to trust in the Lord completely and just, you know, take a leap of faith. I mean, you think about as a young, young person going to face Goliath. I mean, that's one of the first introductions we have to David, you know. I mean, that, that took faith, obviously. I mean, uh, and, and it's interesting that that is not even referred to in Hebrews chapter 11, the faith chapter. <laughs> but but that, I'm just giving you an example. I mean, David was not unfamiliar with this whole concept that one should focus on God and rely on God. And that's the only hope that we have throughout life, okay, is, is keeping our focus on him. All right, so... I'm putting this caveat in there that I, I think that's, uh, I'm, I'm open to the approach that, that McDonald takes. And yes, this is prophetic and maybe was intended by the Lord to, to portray ahead of time what Christ would pray to the Father. That's possible, okay? It obviously refers to Christ and, and things in that context. But, but I think, again, there's other, other aspects involved in this. And again, the, the immediate context of David and his life plays into this, all right? 
like other Messianic Psalms, you know, they're based on a circumstance that prompted that in the psalmist's life, but then there's, there's elements of that that obviously go beyond him and are pointing to something in the future and so on. And then at, at, in the same light, obviously because it's God's Word and the Bible is uh, beneficial for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, there's obviously personal uh, exhortation, personal application, application for us in this psalm as well, all right? So uh, I, I'm just, I, I think one needs to be careful in, in getting in a particular rut and say that's the only, th- you know, the only option with that, all right? But all that said, it is evident that the psalm goes way beyond David and must point ultimately to Christ. However, uh, again, I believe that there's also this application to, for, for us, for God's people of all, of all ages. But So let's just quickly kind of walk through this because there's a part I want to get to and hopefully spend a few minutes in before we have to close, all right? So when you look at this, verse 1, I'm not going to reread the whole psalm. We've, we've read it in its entirety uh, already, but you see verse 1 basically is a cry for and, and a reliance upon, a dependence upon God, all right, for preservation, for God to preserve the one praying here, all right? Because it says what? Preserve me. Oh God, for in thee do I put my trust, all right? And, and that continues then down through this psalm here. Verse 2 is really an acknowledging of submission and relationship to God, all right? Uh, oh, my soul. In fact, that's an interesting statement that you see David using often in the psalms. Uh, his soul, you know, and he's, oh, my soul. Uh, and thou hast said unto the Lord. This is an interesting statement here, and I'm just going to, I'm going to read it and then make a couple comments. I'm going to quote two people, and I'm going to move on on this. He says, Thou art my Lord, my goodness extendeth not to thee. That's an interesting statement, and it has me, when I look at it, you know, scratching my head. Um, But I'll read what McDonald says about it, and then I'll read what a more traditional commentator says about it, Matthew Henry, who uh, also has some good... Good things, all right? But McDonald says this, My goodness is nothing apart from you. That's how he would understand it as saying. Uh, in that, he says, though it's not a denial of the save, Savior's sinlessness, but these words are simply a moving testimony that Christ found all his sufficiency in God. This testimony is comparable to the worship of Psalm 73, verse 25, which is Asaph there. All right, who said this, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is none upon earth that I desire besides you. In other words, his approach is the statement, as it might sound awkward in English, but the idea is he's just expressing that God is his total dependence. There's nowhere else to turn, all right? Matthew Henry puts it this way, though. He says, Whatever good there is in us, and again, keep in mind that McDonald's approach is all Christ-focused. Matthew Henry puts it more in a, a traditional approach of, you know, generic in the Psalms, but whatever good there is in us or is done by us, we must humbly acknowledge that it extends not to God, that so that we cannot pretend to merit anything. In other words, the statement meaning, his, his approach is the statement means, you know, whatever goodness I have, it's not, it's not enough, all right? It's not going to, you know, impress God is the idea. Um, And it goes on, but for time's sake, I'll just stop it there. So verse 3, David's and Christ's desires were, and ours should be as well, 
toward and with a high regard for the saints, for God's people. Verse 3, but to the saints that are in the earth and to the excellent in whom is all my delight. Again, you can see if this is Christ's prayer, Christ was delighted in his people, in his, his apostles, his followers, and so on, and even, of course, extending down through the ages in this New Testament church age, but Christ's desire is toward his people, and obviously ours should be as well. Um, but you have, you have this, this inclusion here that Christ is not only saying, I love and depend on God, but I, I love his people as well. All right, so uh, again, let me just, just move on. So Messiah delights in both his New Testament saints and in the believing remnant of Israel as well. Those are both aspects of Messiah's ministry. Anyway, uh, verse 4 clearly just refers to idolaters, and basically, in a summary, idolaters aren't going to prosper spiritually. There's no hope in idolatry. There's only suffering and pain and so on. In the end, all right, verses 5 through 7, I, I just summary statement on that. Messiah accepts God's will for him and pursues it. While God's will has both pleasant and difficult experiences in it, following it is the only means of fulfillment that one can have. I mean, the only... I, I, I've tried to communicate this to others in this way before in the past. You know, uh, if something is made for a particular purpose, well, I mean, it could be whatever. It could be a tool. It could be whatever. And it's made for one specific purpose. You know, it has a specific job to do. You try to use it for something else, it's a frustrating experience. It's not intended for that. All right? And so it is with our lives as humans. When we, I mean, God has a plan for your life. He has a plan for each of us, right? He has a will. We often use that word, all right? The word will basically means his desire for us, his, his, what he wants for us. Now, he's the creator, right? He created man, all right? Uh, you know, anyway, he created us, and uh, we all have uniquenesses, all right, and so on. Some are eccentricities maybe, but uh, we all have uniquenesses, okay? But the point is, there's reasons for that. Now, I, you know, I think it's fair to say in that, all right, our sin nature has affected those things, okay? So they can be bad, but in God's plan, they're meant to be for good. And that's what we obviously should try to cultivate and endeavor to grow, right? But, but, God's will is the only means that we'll ever have fulfillment in life. Without that, life is frustrating. It really is. And so, and I've had those experiences, uh, but it is. Anyway, let me, let me move on here. We got stuff to get to. All right. And then really in verses 8 through 11, I'm just lumping these together because these are the verses that are referenced in the New, Test <clears throat> in the New Testament by Peter, in fact, go ahead and turn there. Maybe keep a hand or a marker in Psalm 16 here so we could go back and forth if needed. But in, in Acts chapter 2, all right, this is where we find Peter referring to uh, this psalm and actually quoting it, referencing to it. Now, if you read it in Acts 2, you might think that's not an exact quote. But keep in mind, you're talking about 
The Old Testament originally in Hebrew, all right, Peter's speaking a different language on the day of Pentecost as he's talking, and then it's inspired, recorded by inspiration in the New Testament in Greek, all right? So you probably have, and then it's translated for us in both places in English, all right? So you're, you have a multiplicity of languages going on here. That's why oftentimes when you read something in the New Testament that's quoting from the Old Testament, we read that and we say, well, that's not exactly what, well... There's a lot of reason, a lot of things go into that, okay? That's, that's what I'm getting at. But in Acts chapter 2, this is, what, what's Acts chapter 2 given for us? What's it recording historically for us? Events, what? On the day of Pentecost. This is, this is a, a, you know, special day, a special time, uh, and so on. And this is really after Christ's uh, earthly ministry. Now, this is really the first public ministry, if you want to say, that we see the apostles, the New Testament church now having, all right? And th- so this is, this is interesting here. And Peter is the one that preaches here. Peter was, I think he was appointed by the Lord to be the leader, but won't get into all that right now. But Peter stands up and speaks as a result of some people making some accusations, okay? Uh, they're just drunk, you know, that kind of thing. And so Peter actually, his, 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 his words are a response in answer to that, okay? And in the midst of that, then he, start, he preaches a message, uh, and, and it's interesting that, you know, it goes down through verse 36, his, his message as it's recorded here. Now, whether he's, he, you know, there were other, other words and so on that Peter preached that day that aren't recorded here. In fact, I know there are because it says in verse 37, now when they heard this, the, the people hearing it, They were pricked in their heart. They were brought under conviction and said unto Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? In other words, they interrupted him, I guess you could say, and begged for, what do we do? I mean, that would be every preacher's dream, I guess, you know. Uh, Maybe kind of reminiscent of Jonathan Edwards and sinners in the hands of an angry God. I mean, there were, you know. But so then Peter answers in verse 38 through 39, but notice verse 40. And with many other words did he testify and exhort. So that's, that's biblical reason for preachers to use lots of words, right? Take time, all right? And with many other words did he testify and exhort. All right, anyway. Uh, but in the, in the scheme of what Peter's doing here, there's two things that stand out to me that he's doing in his preaching. All right? One is he's giving a witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, if you look at the scriptures, that was one of the main reasons that Jesus had apostles. is because after his, his death, burial, resurrection, and then ascension... He left apostles here to witness of his resurrection, all right? And they were, they were eyewitnesses of him being resurrected. Um, but then secondly, in, in all that, he, he does, if I want to say, he, he, it's a bigger message than just the resurrection. I mean, he, he preaches the gospel to them, all right? Salvation through Christ, all right? And so that's, that's really the two things he's doing here. So um, let me... Uh, Find out what I wanted to do here. Let's see. Um, so in, in the scope of this, in beginning in verse 25, um, let, me, let me begin reading verse 22, all right? Um, because as he starts, 
answering the, the accusation that they were drunk, okay, in verse 13, others said these men are full of new wine. But Peter, in verse 14, standing up with the eleven, lifted up his voice and said unto them, ye men of Judea, and so on. And then he actually, he quotes from Joel first, the, the prophet Joel, all right? And then it's like, okay, he answers that. Now he moves on to demonstrate, okay, this is why all this is happening, because Christ resurrected. And then answer for that, or scriptural evidence for that, he goes back to Psalm 16, all right? So notice verse 20. Uh, two, ye men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as ye yourselves also know, all right, he appeals to the fact they saw these things, and numerous times in the Gospels we have evidence that people, not just the apostles, but lots of people acknowledged, at least gave a head acknowledged, that this, this has to be from God, this has to be from, you know, this, this is Christ, and, and even the, the high priests, all right, they admitted that how can anybody do this except God does it? I mean, that's not a verbatim quote, but that's the gist of what they were saying, all right? Um, but they would not submit themselves to God. Uh, but anyway, um, so he's, he's saying they know these things, all right? And then verse 23, him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, all right? So he says, you know, this is all in God's plan. God had predetermined this was going to happen. You just happen to be the sinful ones that carried it out. That's kind of the idea, all right? And by wicked hands, some think that refers to the Romans here, but uh, regardless, the Romans, Jews all had a part, and we all had a part in the crucifixion, all right? You've crucified and slain whom God hath raised up, having loosed the pains of death because it was not possible that he should be holding of it. That's an interesting statement. It wasn't possible that death could hold Christ. All right? And then notice verse 25, for, and this is why he's making this statement, for David speaketh concerning him. Now, notice the next words, and then if you were to flip back and forth, we won't do it for time's sake because about done here uh, with time, but You'll see he, he starts, he picks up in verse 8 of Psalm 16 right here and basically is quoting that, okay? He says, For David speaketh concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is on my right hand that I should not be moved. Therefore my heart did rejoice and my tongue was glad. Moreover also my flesh shall rest in hope, because thou wilt not leave my soul in hell. Let me just put a caveat here. I don't have time to talk about this. The Lord Jesus did not go to hell as in the fiery place of torment, okay? That's not what this is saying, and there's a lot of Bible reason to explain this. I don't have time to get into it now, but he was in a state of death. He was in the place of the departed, okay? And I'll, I'll at another time, maybe, but um, uh, thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one, to see corruption, and that's the exact wording from Psalm 8, the Holy One, okay, it's referring to Messiah, obviously, all right, to see corruption. In other words, he wasn't going to, God wasn't going to forsake Christ after he died and leave him in a state of being dead, and he was not going to allow his body to decay. So two things, one, he was going to resurrect before decay set in, but also uh, he would, you know, there would be absolutely no way that his body was going to go into decay because his body was going to resurrect and it was going to be 
changed. It was going to be a glorified body when he resurrected. After he resurrected, he walked. He just appeared in rooms. He walked through walls, if you want to say. I mean, he just he didn't have the same physical limitations that his body had prior to that. Christ was limited physically. All right. Now again, he's God, and and had all the attributes of God, but as a man, he physically was limited. All right. Now. Anyway, you, you, see, you see the gist of this here, right? Now, here's, here's the thing that got me. As I, as I went and I was, you know, Psalm 16, then referring back to Acts 2, and I started looking because, and, and you're always limited in time with or by time when you're studying and, and things of that sort. Uh, but my, ideally, okay, if I'm studying a passage, I want to read it numerous times just to get the, you know, in, 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 in the KJV, just read it and get, get it, let it kind of sink in and get the whole picture there, right? And then I start dissecting it. I start analyzing and so on. And looking at verse um, 25, where it says, For David speaketh concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face. This, this is what, and I didn't get any farther than this statement, all right, in, in analyzing this, looking at this. But the grammar that's used here, this is, this is neat, all right? Sometimes grammatical things are really, they just, you know, sometimes they're mundane maybe, but sometimes they really just spark something, okay? And this is one of those cases because the word foresaw, all right, in Psalms, it says, I saw, right? And here it says, foresaw, uh, seeing ahead of time is the idea of the word. But the, uh, the tense of the verb here is an imperfect tense in the Greek. And the idea is it's, it's a continuous thing in past time. And then what struck me about this is, okay, you, you think of all the statements that Jesus makes throughout John's gospel and so on, that he was constantly absorbed with what? The will of the Father. And, and the idea of what struck me and convicted me, okay, is that as Jesus lived here as a man, his total focus was like, it wasn't, I mean, he obviously looked around, dealt with people, saw needs, and, and responded but only in God's will. But so the whole time, it's as if he's walking around just watching the Father. You know, and, and the Father's just leading him, pointing, guiding. In, I can't think of what the reference is in the Psalms, it refers to, uh, well, several statements. I mean, uh, uh, I will lead thee with, my, uh, with mine eye. That's one of the references, and I can't remember the, the exact reference now. But also, uh, later, in fact, I think it's one of the Psalms of Degrees, so it would be between Psalm 120 and Psalm 134, but there's a statement in there, as the, the eyes of a servant are on their master. And the idea, the idea is that, you know, if Christ lived this way, how much more do we need to? I mean, what we should be doing is constantly watching the Father. Again, that statement, you know, Brother Hammett and others use it, but I mean, keep your eyes on the Lord. You know, that's a statement, and sometimes you just hear it, and it's just kind of trite sounding. Oh, yeah, keep your eyes on the Lord, this kind of... But what does that mean? I mean, if you start thinking about it, that's who we need to watch. That's who our focus needs to be on. Not, I mean, and how much difference does, can that make? And uh, I, I, How much difference can that make in our lives when things happen? 
all right? Instead of looking at those things and how terrible they might seem or whatever, watching our Father. I mean, he's the one that, you know, just like a little kid. I, I think uh, my grandsons, you know, I mean, I mean, they're dependent, all right? And they, they're, you know, uh, they need help. And, and they're, they're, they like looking. They like looking at their dad and, you know, and uh, I mean, but how much, how much more do we need to look at our Heavenly Father and keep our eyes on Him? And, and I, I got to quit because time, but I mean, but think, let that, think about, let's stew, if you want to say, over that principle and think about that and let that kind of, you know, goad you, convict you and, and exhort you, all right? If Christ lived that way, now, how much more do we need to? But also, that was, his, that was his success, if I can say it that way. And that's the success that, or what can be our success, I guess is the best way I could say that. That's how we're going to be successful spiritually, is to live that way. And the enemy's always trying to get our eyes off of him. I mean, <laughs> you know, it all, he always is. So keep our eyes on the Lord. Let's, let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for Christ and just everything about him. Help us to love you, look to you as we ought. In Jesus' name, amen.